Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm Matt Doran. My co-host today is Jake Kupferman, and we are joined today by Father Jerry. Father Jerry is a chaplain here at Loyola Law School, and we're talking about what it means to be a Jesuit law school and a student and graduate of a Jesuit law school. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Podvocate, Father Jerry. We're so happy to have you back with us today. A quick bit of background, there are 14 Jesuit law schools in the U.S., which roughly comes out to about one out of every 10 law students in America attends a Jesuit law school. Father Jerry, could you just give us a brief uh, recap for those who weren't fortunate enough to join us for last week's episode? Could you just give us a brief introduction of your background and your role here at Loyola? Sure. Uh, I've been at Loyola since 1976, and every 10 years, I would do a sabbatical research project. So it's not like I've stayed in the same room and done the same thing that whole time. But I started at Lakeshore Campus. I was there until uh, 2003. And then I was asked to come down here to Water Tower Campus specifically to help with law and social work, to be the chaplain of those two schools. So most of the last 15 years I've been here. And can you just tell listeners, and as well as us, what role does a chaplain at a law school, Catholic law school, play? That's a very good question, because not everyone would answer that question the same way. I would say one of the most frequent questions I get asked at the cathedral in Honolulu, where I work in the summers, is this the year? So they'll give me a big hug and bedeck me with a lay and say, is this the year? And I'll mess with them and say, four? They'll go, you know, you're over 65. And I'll say, Jesuits don't retire. And anyone under 50 says, well, that sucks. (laughs) And I'll say, from whose point of view? To me, it's not just a job. And this is specifically an answer to your question. Being a chaplain is not just a job. It's a role I play in the community. And yes, I'm intentional about the law community, the students, faculty, staff, administrators, and alumni, but not only. Many people in this community have spouses or partners, they have children, and if you think that's not gonna matter much, you watch what happens when your law professor has a child whose life is in jeopardy. As they're trying to hold their ship in the water doing the best they can to teach you torts or whatever you're learning at the time and deal with this very important relationship in their life. So it's a role that's not merely crisis oriented, but I try to see how do I help people come to life on multiple levels. We have all kinds of phrases that get at Ignatian spirituality, which is operative in a Jesuit school like care for the whole person. You can make all the plans you want, but when you come here to, to work, whether as a student, a faculty member, administrator, staff, whatever, you make all the plans you want, but life's what happens after your plans. So how do I deal with that, live with that, come to life through that? What is God trying to help me learn through this? People are here at different levels of familiarity with God talk, 
So it's not that people that go to Jesuit schools get hammered over the head with God. But on the other hand, like I say at orientation all the time, we don't apologize for faith either. And I think it's the very fact that this law school is in a Catholic Jesuit university. It's because of that that we welcome people of all kinds of traditions. We believe God manifests God's self through not only all the major religions, but through individuals who aren't sure where they are right now. And so how, how to help people who are open to having help, not shove it down their throat, but those that are eager to make next best steps in trying to explore that whole dimension of faith, whether it's faith in yourself. I always start with faith in God if that's a, a variable. Sometimes the faith people have is I believe there is no God. And fairly, they will say to me, well, just like you want me to respect what you believe, chaplain, will you respect what I believe, even if what I believe is there is no God? That's a fair question. And I think in this Catholic Jesuit university, at least this chaplain will say, absolutely. So you, uh, you touched on it a, a little bit, you know, the, the holistic view of what a Jesuit law school looks like, not just being a Jesuit, not just being a law student, but putting those things together. What do you think and what do you feel should be the mission of a Jesuit law school as compared to that of a regular non-Jesuit or secular law school? I think there are many similarities, such as competence. Again, when I'm trying to help our younger guys in the training of becoming a priest, I will always say to them, there is no substitute for competence. Whatever it is your advanced degrees are in, do the best you can to know your stuff. In the long run, even if people don't appreciate it in the short run, in the long run, that's what they will remember and come back later and say, thanks, that was really helpful. I was madder than hell at you for years. Or it just it was just kind of the burr in my saddle that just kind of kept rubbing and now I think I get what you meant when you said that. So competence is across the board, I think. But what I think is unique about a Jesuit education is that there is care for levels other than merely academic. You really need to pay close attention to body, mind, and spirit. And the spirit with which you approach anyone or anything, any situation, makes all the difference in the world. So the Loyola-specific um, Jesuit qualities that are presented on the, the Loyola website, um, their passion for quality, studies of the humanities and sciences, ethics and values, um, the importance of the religious experience, and being person-centered. Mm -hmm. So those are pulled from just the Loyola undergrad website, but mm -hmm. how do you feel those five things and that holistic picture that you've mentioned translates into the Loyola Law Program specifically? First of all, I'd start by saying it's not perfect, that it's as human as any other dimension of this university. And like I said in that previous podcast, it's easy to work this stuff out in theory easier than embodying it in human beings here. But I think there are at least people here who care about each of those variables that you mentioned. And not just staff, not just administrators, but faculty, alums as well. It's not just a chaplain. I'm to be like a catalyst in the midst of the community to help us all remember there are implications to the choices we make. And 
might want to think about that a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> um, so the there's a, a law review article posted in a Marquette Law Review, um, actually from the 90s, but the then director of the law library at Marquette said that Jesuit universities started law schools for reasons that were ultimately theological, but were also manifestly sociological and political. So, you know, obviously that's a, that's a big, profound statement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it translates into, you know, creating a specific type of lawyer and that being the goal of a Jesuit law school. Um, so what do you feel is the role of a lawyer that's a product of a Jesuit law school? Someone who has a sensibility for people that are caught on the margins and voiceless. So how can we advocate for people who are being unjustly treated in ways that will be helpful for them to get traction, to get a better life? Yeah, I think those, that kind of a, a focus or concern permeates this place. Um, I don't think that it necessarily implies we all are automatons or you know robotic and how we go about doing that but that people develop a certain lens a certain way of noticing when someone's left out when someone's being mistreated um, and how the law might serve them well I think that's that's worth promoting here Professor Breen is a law professor here in 2005 he wrote an article in the Loyola Law Journal and he cited a 1997 panel discussion that took place here at the school uh, that was prompted by students and at which the students were upset about what they perceived to be the lack of legal instruction through the prism of justice. And they expressed dismay that they came to Loyola looking for a curriculum that integrated traditional legal education and promoting justice, but found few classes achieved that integration. And in the article, Professor Breen wrote, the fundamental problem that confounds the legal profession today is that many lawyers no longer see a connection between the ordinary work they perform for clients and the virtue of justice. This loss of connection is often profoundly disheartening since, at least in part, it was out of a desire to promote justice that many first sought to become lawyers. So again, that was published in 2005 uh, based on a panel from 1997. Professor Breen, uh, based on the research that Jake and I performed, is quite the authority on Jesuit education at law schools in the country. How do you believe that the connection to justice has been strengthened in the last 15 years here at Loyola, and what can the school continue to improve upon? I think some of our new centers are specifically addressing that uh, issue. I think there has been an eye on hiring for some people who would be passionate about the role of justice. So I think those are two structural pieces that are uh, examples of efforts to try to move in that direction. I think our current dean is every chance he can, whether with students, with administrators, with faculty, at faculty meetings, administrative meetings I go to with the law school. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting there going, my God, any Jesuit who sits in this room would be thrilled Hmm. at the kind of leadership that Michael Kaufman is giving this law school right now. Well, I think to your point, you know, we're sitting here because of Dean Michael Kaufman. I mean, he's the one that has provided us this platform to use our voices and put messages out there that are important. And if I can just follow up, Matt, uh, my research on Professor Breen is spending a full semester in his contracts class. And I can <laughs> confirm um, that these things that he talks about are important. And Father Jerry, to your point, 
to bring those into the classroom can be difficult when you're talking about the law because it can be so black and white and here's the rule of law and this is what the case says, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But always encouraging that moral compass um, to be the lens that we look through things at is, you know, Professor Breen's exceptional at it, but certainly um, here at Loyola making that a priority. Another thing that Professor Breen proposed was requiring 1Ls to take an introductory course in moral theory and jurisprudence balanced with a required symposia or conference, whatever you want to call it, for faculty on what it means to be a law professor at a Catholic school. Do you agree with either of those ideas, and and what benefits do you think that they would reap? I think there are a lot of good values that could come from a careful approach to each of those areas. I also think you have to proceed carefully when you start requiring things. To offer them, to present them as not just a frivolous elective, but is something that's substantive and gets recommended in ways that are substantial, I think that's a very good thing. I'm not sure about requiring it myself. For either side, for the student course or the faculty instruction or or in both? I think faculty, they are getting some of that now. Okay. You know, there are different, it's not a whole course or, Mm -hmm. but there will be sections of like a faculty meeting or whatever where the emphasis on um, Jesuit dimensions of this will be brought to the, brought to the table and made explicit. Okay. I can't put words in Professor Breen's mouth, so I don't know what he was thinking when he proposed these ideas, but part of me wonders if he was frustrated by the dynamic of the fact that you have to prepare for the bar exam. I mean, no matter what faith we are, no matter how, what line of work we choose to pursue after graduation, we have to take the bar exam, and there will be contracts, property, con law, etc. And so how I think he might have been frustrated with the idea of how do you bifurcate 1L education in such a way where you get that, what he called, jurisprudence and moral theory class with the classes that you got to take to pass the bar exam. And my guess is that that is why he hoped that faculty would get some training. And so I'm very glad, I'm sure he is glad to hear that, and I'm guessing he's participating since he's a faculty member. Do you think that faculty are succeeding in that? And I would say, measuring that based on the conversations that you're having with students? Or do you, when you're talking with 1Ls, 2Ls, and 3Ls here at the school, do you feel that the way that they're talking to you is a product of moral theory and jurisprudence being intricately woven and not in a forceful, required way, but being an intrinsic part of contracts, property, con law, et cetera? On good days. You know, <laughs> this is a real human endeavor, and it's messy. And I have bad days, just like you do too, and sometimes what I'm picking up is not so much. And that's saddening, it's disappointing, it's disheartening, but there's an art to this. To me, it's a science and an art and a mystery. A lot of things are, but including legal education. It's a science in the sense that you can lay out all kinds of observable data and factors that you can generalize and and group and hypothesize and test, your th- et cetera. So there's a whole science to it. You read lots of books about how to do this. It's also an art. You can have a lot of book knowledge, but it involves instinct, intuition, and imagination. And some got it and some don't. <laughs> you can be brilliant and have your degrees from whatever, Berkeley, Ivy League <laughs> school, whatever, but the art of it The art of helping students get this moral theory 
a sense of <laughs> real justice and why that matters, it, it's just not, it's, mis, it's a misfire. So there's an art to it. But besides the science and art, I think it's always a mystery. This conversation is. And to me, that's a faith statement that you may or may not agree with. That's okay. But from my point of view, I believe God is always working in every situation. And how God brings the legal professional and the student to the next layer is very mysterious. And it sometimes doesn't happen in a nine to five setting. It's sometimes way later when different experiences occur in someone's life that are awesome in the sense of awesome and wonderful or awesome awful I just never thought it would be like this something comes back and you go huh oh that's what she was referring to when she taught us this I get it now <laughs> so yeah it comes up on a good day a lot on a really bad day not so much fair enough well I think uh, you know Father Jerry you touched on this a little bit earlier that Professor Breen is pretty good at these types of things. And I think one thing that I can speak to from my experience was in a contracts class where it is pretty formulaic, right? I mean, if you're talking about X, then Y should be the result. And as long as you have these factors, so on and so forth. But I think one thing that um, Professor Breen did a great job of, and I, I've noticed it from other Loyola faculty too, is um, what's always underplaying the rule of law is the theory of justice and that it should be equitable and um, that the law should reflect what we would expect to have happen and, and what we would hope to have happen. And obviously sometimes that is not how it manifests. But to your point, I think that's always a goal and something that Loyola staff are working at constantly. As one else here at Loyola, and I, I believe you're in attendance, Father Jerry, we had our public interest convocation mm -hmm. uh, where faculty and administrators impressed upon us the role we can play as public service advocates in our legal careers. It should be mentioned, though, you know, and I'm sure you're, as of course I'm sure you're aware, the pay for public service legal jobs is significantly lower than private sector uh, jobs. That being said, law school tuition continues to increase, and Loyola is no exception. So the following schools are all Jesuit law schools. Georgetown is $65,000 a year, Fordham $62,000, Gonzaga out in eastern Washington State $40,000, Seattle University $46,000, and Loyola $48,000. Law school graduates face significant debt burdens. How are Jesuit law schools putting their graduates in positions of long-term personal, uh, you know, like we talked about last week with relationship success, as well as professional success, when they're encouraging their graduate, their students, and their graduates to pursue public interest work while also sending them out with significant law school debt? I wish there was an easy answer to that. <laughs> I don't think there is. Um, I think we do what we can to try to bring down debt. Um, people may need to do a hybrid, like for a while, pay down the debt to a point where it's manageable and it's not going to cripple their family life or married life, whatever, and then do more public interest law. It is, it's a conundrum, no doubt about it. There are conflicting values there. I wish, like in the early Jesuit training, our schools became so popular they were free. I don't think that's going to happen next year. <laughs> I certainly don't like the odds. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> I wish, but I don't think so. Um, it is, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack, no doubt about it. There are competing mm -hmm. values there. Fair enough. 
So then for if we're encouraging our lawyers, you know, the products of this law school to go out and pursue public interest work, what are we putting on the table as a, a Loyola community and as a legal community to entice these, you know, there are brilliant minds that could really make differences in the community. But as you mentioned, it's just not, it's not practical, it's not feasible. So, you know, what can we, besides appealing to one's inner moral drive, what can we do um, to make that more realistic? I think a couple of things. One is to moderate what's enough so that, you know, we don't always imagine the happy life is the life that's lived with X number of cars and timeshares and et cetera, et cetera, so that I'm more content with less. That's one thing we can do. Um, another, I think, is to do always a combination, even if for a while you have to do a job that will bring in significantly more money than if you focused your whole career on public interest law because there's just no other way to do it. My family doesn't have the kind of means that some others do, and so there's just no other way. But even while you're doing the larger, more corporate, higher paying, that you build in parts of your life where you can enough public interest work that it keeps alive the fire in the belly. Well, one thing I think that makes Loyola so remarkable, the alumni community here is, is special. It's and, true. And um, I've been fortunate enough to meet a good number of alumni working in public interest, working in corporate, working in-house, so on and so forth. And one thing that is consistent for all of these Loyola grads is you know, this desire to go out and use what we've learned and use our means and use our resources for better these really successful attorneys working big-time jobs are still making it a priority to take 10% of their, excuse me, 10% of their work week, X number of hours a year, and pro bono just devote it to, you know, helping those that need it. And I think that's something that, um, that Loyola really does a great job of emphasizing. But, uh, you know, you, if you're surrounded by it and you see that those that we admire and those that we look to for advice are doing it, then we're going to follow in those footsteps. And I think um, that's something that's pretty remarkable here. I agree with that. And I think a good example of that is the 1L dinners, when people have already worked a long day and they're not getting paid to come do this. It's, or, or to speak at this Staying Best Friends program that I helped facilitate. You know, there, there's not a big paycheck that goes with that. It's out of their desire to help others that are following them to get traction in things that really matter. Well, and I think too, you know, we're, we, the Loyola community, have really uh, put a priority on making it be a community and, and making it feel as though, you know, yes, I, I went here for my legal education and the purpose of my legal education is for a job, but at the same time, I think there's a, a pretty amazing culture that we all represent each other and we all look out for each other. Um, and I don't think that is something that's common across not just law schools in general um, in Chicago or elsewhere, but I think uh, you know, Loyola is, is really a unique, uh, unique law school, a unique, can't even think of the word, a unique institution in that regard. And I think uh, a lot of that has to do with culture. I agree. And I, the, the most recent place where I saw that embodied graphically was we just had uh, the alumni awards it was a mass and cocktails and, and dinner, hors d'oeuvres and dinner, and the presentation of the awards. It was just stunning. 
I mean, the stories, these four awardees, one of whom is on our, Diane Garrity on our faculty here now, I mean, when you hear the stories of their lives and what they've, I was going to say have done, because one of them was posthumously presented, and her husband, while the kids are sitting right there at the table, accepted the award. I mean, there was a lump in everybody's throat. But it was powerful. It was hearing a witness um, that's more than theory, that people actually live, and why they do it, um, and the difference it makes in people's lives. Oh, my God. That's... To sit there and not be inspired by that, you'd have to be pretty calloused. You're 100% correct. I was lucky enough, and one of the other hats I wear around the law school is I, I help out with the Student Bar Association, um, and I serve on the board. And so we were lucky enough to be there. And I think um, in one of our earlier episodes this season, we talked about how a lot of legal events are just come have a drink or however many drinks, whatever, and that's it. That's the structure. And I think when you contrast that that typical event structure with this alumni dinner where, you know, as you mentioned, it was so impactful. And, and it wasn't just the four award recipients who mm-hmm. are and were remarkable individuals. It was the people in attendance and, mm-hmm. um, you know, this community that was created. And, and I was lucky enough to hear you speak there and, and you addressed it too. I mean, you said, look out on this room and how lucky we are to be here, of course, but obviously... Um, this community is is powerful and impactful in and of its own right. So, so we'll, we'll close out with a, a not necessarily a question, but so, it is a question, but a theme the, put forward by today's most famous Jesuit, Pope Francis, who has spoken with vigor about the devastating human suffering and dehumanization running across the globe right now. He was addressing a Fortune Time Global Forum, uh, December of 2018. And he called for an urgent need for more inclusive and equitable economic models and urged a revolution of tenderness, which I thought was a great turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. How can such concepts be woven into a law school's curriculum and community? My first thought is think globally and act locally. That's, that, that's just my frame of reference I came to is I can have some big ideas for the world, but what's that mean about what I'm going to do tomorrow morning? And I think I can choose to make choices that can impact individual small groups that I work with regularly to call forth an awareness and a caring about people whose names I don't even know. The most recent example for me is when there's nothing that converts me, turns my heart around, my head around, more than when a human being, a person, is sitting in my office or in my star it's not my Starbucks, but the Starbucks where I go, and says to me, I think I can trust you. I go, well, I'm glad. I think I'm trustworthy. How can I be there for you? Well, I don't know where to begin. I say, okay, person, place, or thing. Person. Okay. Is it somebody close? She's, mm-hmm. It's myself. I went, oh, really? I think I'm trans. Okay. What does that mean to you? Because not everybody describes that the same way. And I'm figuring out as I'm in honest conversation with this person why it's important for me to pay close attention to this person's experience and where they feel like they're being treated unjustly. 
So that's an example of one-on-one -on -one or one-on small groups where I as an individual, while I'm thinking about what does this mean for us as a, the Jesuits in the world or the refugee service that we, or all these other ways we're doing outreach to migrants, or, and those are really good things to do, but it also has to impact each of us somehow today. And so when I'm then in a conversation later in the day with someone else who's just being, demonstrating an intolerance for all these extraneous crazy people who are trying to get into, like trans, for example, and I go, well, hang on a second. Let me tell you what happened to me this morning and how this person called me to an openness. And, a, and, and it, by sharing stories like that, Hawaiians have this expression called talking story, which means when you're talking about something that's more than meets the eye and has significance beyond, I'm a sports fan, so this is not a shot at the Bears, but it's it's more than sports. It's more than the Bears or too bad the Cubs weren't in it this year. But when you're talking about things that really matter, it it calls forth certain qualities of response that opens up a fairer, more just, inclusive world that has to happen on the micro as well as the macro level. I think we're lucky to be at Loyola in Chicago. And so I think that the Jesuit values that are hopefully being instilled in us, and I think that we're going to, as you pointed out, perhaps manifest years later, and our come-to-Jesus-realization moments might happen years from now, but I think we benefit in such a way where Creighton in Omaha, uh, no disrespect to Creighton out there, but just simply can't achieve because they're not in a city like Chicago where we have endless opportunities to get involved in communities and expose ourselves to a variety of perspectives in such a way where we can have those uh, talking story moments. Even within our law school, mm -hmm. not just out in the city, but even right within our law school, we have all kinds of people among the students, faculty, staff, administrators, and alums. We get encouragement to talk like that, to listen mm -hmm. to stories. Well, I think, you know, we are, again, lucky to have someone, you know, working on this micro level with this macro vision like you. And I think it's tough sometimes to see how that, how an individual's actions um, on a day-to-day -day basis, manifest into big picture, holistic change. But obviously, things are are working because, you know, as Matt has mentioned, we are in this pretty special little bubble here in Loyola, where we've got a diverse community and we're working towards a common goal of becoming lawyers. And yet, at the same time, Loyola carries so much weight around the city. Um, I'm a transplant in terms of I'm not from Chicago, and I've moved here, and I think it was. A little nerve-wracking to come to a big city like this and not be going to a U Chicago or not be going to Northwestern, um, and then on a national scale having to compete with these big-name law schools. Again, no disrespect to Creighton, but I think it, it's it's pretty amazing that you and people that have been here for so long have been able to create this culture where Loyola does have such a positive reputation, both in Chicago and and across the country, and a lot of that does stem from that Jesuit identity of you know, the come to Jesus moments mm -hmm. manifesting in lawyers and turning into good people being good lawyers. And I think that's, that's pretty unique here. I sometimes uh, am uh, bemused in my Jesuit community when someone who has all the experience of a few years, not a lot of years, will say out of uh, their ignorance, do you think we ought to be doing this? 
and I can tell by the context in which they're asking me, I'm going like, do you mean run a law school? They'll go, yeah. I'll say, how much time you got? <laughs> Let me just tell you some conversations or programs that I attended or participated in this week. And I start describing them. They go like, I had no idea. I say, well, that's okay. There is a world out there. You might want to get off Lakeshore campus, <laughs> come downtown, or at least open up the web, you know, go to luc.edu slash law and see all these varieties of programs that are offered in ways in which Loyola takes initiative to make contact with people around issues that are burning right now from a Jesuit perspective. Well, and I, I think you, you know, right off the bat, you said, you know, we're not perfect here. We are far from perfect. But I think what makes this community and this law school special is there's there at least and obviously my time here has been limited. It's only been a year and a half. You could probably speak to this much better than I could, but there is a burning desire to strive for improvement. And it is there's never a satisfaction with the status quo. And every year there's a new wrinkle. And every semester there's something being discussed that wasn't being discussed previously. And I think that also is unique and also is profound. It's, it's powerful. Yeah, I agree with that. One final quick thought that I'd love to just get your opinion on. Do you have a recommendation for a role model, likely a lawyer, although perhaps not, for students to think about how could I be more like this person as I further my legal career? Like I look to Vincent LaGuardia Gambini, me personally. Mm-hmm. It's my cousin Vinny. That's clearly lost in this room. <laughs> I wasn't sure who that was, but I thought I'm glad he's uh, a valuable model. I'm he lied in court all the time. He's a terrible you, uh, role model. You didn't speak with a thick enough accent for me to pick up on that one. <laughs> oh, my. I think there are many models that, that we could look to, um, and they're not all, like, living now. Some of the saints, I think, are people who are worth emulating. Thomas More is the one for that comes example, to mind for me. That's, I mean, his portrait's right over my desk downstairs in my office. Uh, so if you're looking for a legal model, yeah, Thomas More would be a good one, I think. Okay. But I would bet there are good models in the law in various traditions. For some people, a Christian model may not be the ideal model. They could find some within their own community. Mm-hmm. I think we have models right on our faculty and staff right here that I think are incredibly unpretentious, understated in their greatness, mm-hmm. not to impress with themselves, but they have hearts that are bigger than their bodies and minds to match. It's not like they're <laughs> soft in the head. They, they're very <laughs> smart people well-credentialed, big, big hearts, and spirits. I think if people keep their eyes open in this community, there's a lot of living, breathing examples right here under the roof. Well, it's really encouraging to hear you say that, and I hope that we, as the team here and people who are listening, can keep their eyes and minds open to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Father Jerry. We really appreciate you uh, you joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Matt and Jake. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. 
Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.